Welcome to the Wolf Whistle, the podcast that interviews and celebrates the former players of our great club, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Welcome to the Wolf Whistle. Welcome to the 101st edition of the Wolf Whistle podcast, the podcast which interviews and celebrates the former players of our great club. We're going back to the 90s, a midfielder, 54 appearances for the Wolves between 1993 and 1997, scoring eight goals along the way, Jeff Thomas. Jeff, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, Jeff. I'm looking forward to this because... Um, I was really, really excited the day you signed for Wolves. We're going to talk all about that. Um, and I saw you the other day at the Cure Leukemia event. Uh, I thought you was actually going to get your boots on, Jeff. <laughs> oh, I wish I could. Just watching the event and watching everybody enjoy themselves. Um, yeah, it, it just wants you to get on the pitch again. But I know, like a, probably a lot of the guys who were playing that day, they probably couldn't move the next day. And I'd probably take about a week to get my legs going again if I tried to do what you guys were doing. Well, I, I, I'm sort of um, slowly getting back into it today. So <laughs> it's took me a few <laughs> days, Jeff. So, um, <clears throat> But all about you today, Jeff. Now, you had a fantastic career, um, over 600 appearances. But it... it all started at, at Rochdale, and you actually took a pay cut to pay for them, I believe, because you was an electrician. Yeah, it was in my final year as um, qualifying as electrician, and I got spotted uh, by a scout. You know, just playing park football, really. Yeah. And yeah, just you at the age of nineteen, you think you've missed a boat, or oh, I never even thought about. Everybody dreams about being a professional footballer, but I just thought I was getting on. Yes. And I've seen a few players at my age around that area having trials at the likes of Norwich and Bristol City, oddly enough, even though we lived in Manchester. Yeah. There seemed to be scouts from all over the place. And I thought, you know, I'd missed my opportunity. So it was a, it was like my final sort of shot at um, having a goal. And I played... Only a handful of games for Rochdale, um, but one of them was against Crew, and I scored a goal. And Dario Brady was a manager at the time, and yeah, he saw something in me that probably a lot of scouts didn't see or coaches. And he said, "Right, let's uh, let's give it a crack." And I signed. I think I've signed a two-year contract, and my electrician's wage was hundred and twenty pound a week, yeah. and. He offered me £95. I think it was a test. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I had a word with my dad. He told me, no, he told me to carry on being an electrician. Yeah. You know, it was too much of a risk. But I I just uh, thought, this is it. I can go back to that if I need be. And, yeah, never look back, really. Oh, I mean, th- these stories are great because, obviously, players now come through academies. Um, actually, it's a very, very similar story to Don Goodman's, believe it or not, Jeff, because Don was an electrician and he did exactly the same. He says, can you keep my job open? Um, and, and like you, he never looked back. Um, after Crew, three successful years at Crew was Crystal Palace. Huge move for you. You played, I believe, just under 250 games for the club. Um, the pinnacle of that, Jeff, came in the FA Cup final where you capped in the side in 1990. You know, you're an electrician a few years before and then you captain in a side at Wembley. I mean, that must have been huge. 
Yeah, it really was massive. I mean, I was a Manchester lad and we, we came up against Man United with Sir Alex leading them out and the great Brian Robson, captain of Man United. And yeah. I was striding out on this allow turf next to this great man. And, you know, you'd have to pinch yourself really looking back. But it, bizarrely, when you're in it and you're always trying to improve and match the guys you're playing against. And I, I never felt out of place in my football career. I had, I had a mindset thinking, this is my one and only chance. Yes. And I was thinking that 18 years later, you know, it's my one and only chance to keep in the team. And that's that's how I looked at football. It was, it was something that I really enjoyed every single minute of it, you know, going to training. Because, of, like you say, a lot of the guys from that, even Stuart Pearce and players like that, I know went through the old system of trying to be, get spotted and all that sort of thing and went into football late. Yeah. And you just appreciate it a lot more. Yes. Um, you know, I was working, getting up early, five, six o'clock in the morning, travelling miles to to do a job and then returning in the dark and then just looking forward to the weekends to have a kickabout with your mates. But yeah. um, to do that professionally for such a long time, it was just, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a dream come true, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that final, it was three all. I remember watching the game on TV um, and it was it was end-to-end -end stuff. And it was, you know, Palace was so close. I think Ian Wright got two goals. And it, it was just yep. disappointing that you ended up losing the replay, Jeff. Yeah, we, we, it was, um, I think, looking back, the first game, you know, we beat Liverpool in the semi-final, which yeah. not a lot of people thought we would do after being hammered 9-0 in the season by yeah, now. Yeah, I've got about that. You remember, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember it, sadly. <laughs> but it was a lesson and uh, we learned from that and bizarrely, I think looking back, I think we did the double against Man United that year and we, so we felt confident going into the game even though they had the star names. Yes. Um, you know, the Bruce, Pallisters, Ince and all these guys but you know, like I say, we've beaten them before and we, we weren't feared. But in the first game, we went out and really enjoyed it. We The manager, Steve Koppel, said, listen, it's a, it might be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Just go out and enjoy it and play your football. And we did. And I think the second game, we thought we were so close. We were seven minutes away from winning the Cup. I think we went a bit too hard and a, a bit more direct and a bit more fierce in everything, everything we did. And we yeah. lost the focus on doing what we do best and that's, you know, um, getting stuck in and using the flair of the players that we had. We had, you know, Ian Wright and all these sort of guys, John Solarco, and we had a very good team, which we proved, you know, the season after we finished third in the top flight. So yeah. we knew we had a good team. Um, but unfortunately, we just, we fell short in the replay and Lee Martin, I think, scored his one and only goal for Man United in a long career he had there and uh, yeah. sad, sadly he picked that day. <laughs> I mean, a day I'll never forget, surely, but it, um, I suppose for you as well, there was a bit of added edge because you're a Manchester City fan, Jeff. I am. I was born right next to Main Road, the old uh, Man City football ground yeah. and... My gran actually lived on Kippak Street. We lived on... It was like Coronation Street, the, the, the starting titles of Coronation Street. That's exactly the sort of house we were living in. Right. Um, toilets outside in the backyard and things like that. It was... Uh, yeah, it was... for an enjoyable upbringing. And part of that was because it was so close to Main Road. And yes. every Saturday, 
um, or most Saturdays, even when the reserves were playing, there'd be always some activity um, yeah. going on around the place. But on match days, the, the, the atmosphere, you know, even at a, a young age, you, we opened the front door and we listened to the chanting. We, we could tell if City were winning or losing just by the, the noise that was going around. Um, but back then as well, the last 20 minutes, he used to open the big gates. Yeah. So, and the kickbacks, if they weren't doing so well, the, the fans used to come streaming out and me and my dad used to sneak in and watch the last 20 minutes Brilliant. when we could. So it was great. Was, and City were a good side then. Colin Bell and Max Summerby, Francis Lee, all these names are became icons of Man City. And um, yeah, and it, that, that's, you know... It, it, that's what I'm saying. Everybody wants to be a footballer when you're that age. You, you know, get your dream of getting your first football, dream of getting your first football kit. And because I was so close to to Man City, it was obviously all my family were blue. So um, I had to be a blue. I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> now, six years at Crystal Palace. And what's interesting, Jeff, just before the move to Wolves, you did actually have a chance to join Manchester City. Did and I going back a year before that, Kenny Dalglish came in for me at Blackburn. Oh, and right, offered yeah. a, a ridiculous amount, a ridiculous amount of money. He offered two point eight million. He yeah. just bought, he just bought Alan Shearer for just under three million. Yeah, and he came in, and Crystal Palace were actually playing Blackburn the first game of the season, and so. I was actually talking. I mean, times have changed. It's all agents now, but I was. I actually got a phone call from Kenny Dalglish on the Friday night saying, don't get injured, we're signing you Monday. <laughs> and for many reasons, that didn't happen. Um, there was a sell-on uh, clause to crew that would have taken the fee over the price of Alan Shearer. Right. And Jack Walker didn't want to do that, and Ron Nodes didn't want to pay it either. So, you know, I became the, the man in the middle of, of them, you know, backwards and forwards. And the deal was... Off the off the card on on the Monday Tuesday, so that that season became a little bit. You know, my mind wasn't on it for. The, I've, I've got to be honest. The first ten games of the season, it took a while to sort of recover from that because I thought I'd gone there for fifty thousand. Yeah, and I thought two point eight was a fair return. Absolutely, and and doing what we're doing, and we'd already sold Ian Wright and Mark Bright and a number of players that I thought you know. I was loyal to a point. Yes. Uh, and being captain, you, you feel like you've, you, you're more connection to the coaching side and things like that. But yeah, yeah, it was um, it was a tough t season. We ended up getting relegated, and that made it made it worse, to be honest. Yeah. And and so I was looking for something fresh, and then I saw in Wolves what I saw in Blackburn. They went on to win the league, and I just thought it was a chance of getting in at the start of something yes. really exciting. Well, I think I was 28, 27, 28, and you know, I've had England caps, and I felt like my career was at a stage where I needed something fresh to really get me the, the juices going again. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I spoke to Man City, Peter Reid. And he knew I was a City fan, and but I was also speaking to Sheffield Wednesday at the time, and they were managed by Trevor Francis. Yes, and it was his advice really because 
He said, whatever you decide, I'd tell you not to go to Man City. It's the best club I've ever played for, he said. But I know there's upheaval going on behind the scenes at the moment. And All right. That put doubt in my mind about going to City anyway, because I didn't want to go as a City fan, go to a club that was on decline. Yes. Even though it, nobody could see that happening at the time, but that did happen. You know, that, Trevor was proven right on that side. And so when I was, I had these phone calls, I had a number of clubs that I was talking to, Newcastle was another. Um, but Graham Turner wouldn't leave me alone. He kept on ringing me up every day. Every evening. I'm glad he did. He was saying that he was going on holiday in a couple of days and he, he really wanted to enjoy it. And the only way he could enjoy it was knowing that he'd got me signed up. So, out of being just polite, really, I said, right, I'm going up to the north anyway, so I'll drop into Wolves on the way up and um, we'll have a chat. And Crane was very clever. He set everything up. He had the Haywood family there. <laughs> Um, he had Billy Wright there. He had the plans of the new Grand uh, Stadium all in front of me. Yeah, and I it just sort of got me going, really thinking, yes. right, I'm dropping, I'm dropping down a level, but I, I thought it was only going to be for one season, and this is an opportunity of playing at a club that could go on and get bigger and bigger. I saw the expansion plans for the stadium. And all that. And I knew, obviously, the likes of Steve Bull and Dave Kelly was coming along. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kevin Keane. Yeah. So it was, I just felt, yeah, a great opportunity to sort of really kickstart my career where I felt it was a perfect time. I mean, Jeff, I was so excited that transfer window. And I, I've joked, listen, recently Wolves have had a fantastic window, spent over £100 million. And I was opening what I said that. Um, the, the the best window in my lifetime, other than this one for a hundred million, was that one where we signed yourself, Kevin Keane, David Kelly, and I went into that season with so much hope and expectation, as I'm sure you did. Your debut yeah. against Bristol City, glorious sunny day at Molyneux, we won three one, and I thought, you know what? I thought this was the catalyst. We'd signed some great players, and I really thought this was going to be the season that we went up. So everybody in, inside that dressing room did. Yeah. And I think we were so confident. I think we had a blip against Middlesbrough. and But even then we played really well. And Middlesbrough were a strong outfit. Um, but over the 90 minutes, we, had, we were the better team. But they, I think, um, their midfielder scored a wonder goal. But uh, anyway, that just um, it just felt like we're, we were going to win it. It, yeah. it just... There was nothing that was going to stop us, but there was, unfortunately, <laughs> and that was just plagued by injuries. The squad, not just myself, but Bully missed a, a big chunk of the season. Yes. You just can't lose key figures like that, no. you know, in a, a squad of our size. And uh, yeah, it just it was painful. And yeah, the sad thing was, it was Graham Turner paid the price. Yes, which was. I, I was saddened about, but and I by that time I couldn't do anything about it. I was already you know, sat inside the physio room just watching everything go on. Well, I mean, Jeff, we're going to come on to that. I mean, I don't know if you know the statistics, but you after the Bristol City game in the next seven games you scored four goals. Um, <clears> you, you, I mean, you started on fire, and and that was something we'd missed. A, you know, a real goal scoring midfielder. And the day all sadly went wrong, um, and I know you don't mind talking about it, Jeff, but it was Sunderland away. We won 2-0. We 
We we spoke about this the other night, actually. Can you you can remember the first goal scorer, can't you, Jeff? Yeah, I forgot his name now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I know he scored with his backside. It was um, Mike Small. Yes, that's it. So Mike yeah. Small. So the keeper hit it. He didn't know much about it. He hit him on the backside. Went in. We're winning one nil. Um, yeah. The second half, I watched this goal recently. You picked the ball up, pretty much on the edge of our area. And you, you just, as I call it, slalom through the midfield and the defence. <laughs> I mean, Jeff, you know, then you put it onto your favoured left foot, slotted it in the corner, and it was an unbe- You know, I'm going to have to blow smoke up your arse, Jeff. It was an <laughs> unbelievable goal, and that single-handedly paid back the, the £800,000. But minutes after, it, it, it all went wrong, didn't it, Jeff? Yeah, and... That sort of goal, you know, I was riding on a, a wave of confidence anyway, and that just yes. sort of typified it. Rather than trying to play the ball off, I felt confident that I could get that goal. Yeah. And, you know, Sunderland were really pushing to try and get an equaliser. And we know we have, the noise that the, the Roker end used to make was loud, and they were pushing, pushing. So when we scored, when I scored that goal and celebrated, I think... Uh, I've heard rumours that certain things were said on the bench and then how he came on as a sub from the kickoff. And the first time I touched the ball, it was only probably about two passes after they kicked off that we won the ball and it, the ball ended up at my feet. Yeah. And I just saw this figure lunging towards me, both feet way off the ground, over knee level, and just I couldn't get out of the way. And that, that was it. You know, um, I looked down at my shin and I could see my shin pad was split and Dave Kelly came across. <laughs> I always remember Dave Kelly coming across, looking down at me and then more or less looking like he was going to be sick and ran off. Oh. And everybody was saying, don't look, don't look. And my shin was just open wide. And, you know, that wasn't that bad. You know, I, I, I thought, right, I get off. We'd won the game, stitches, and then see see what happens. But the the cut itself, they said, I'm going to be out for about three weeks anyway. And I got back, I played a reserve game, and I was doing okay. And then I just started running into the box, trying to get on the an end of a cross, and my knee just collapsed underneath me. So what we, we didn't realise that, during that tackle, McCrucian was snapped as well. So, oh. yeah, that that was the start of a really frustrating period for that, that Wolves because, like you say, I was scoring goals, uh, yes. which I, I, I thought for fun. Yeah, Bully was perfect foil to allow me to get into gaps what he was creating when making his, his runs as a natural goal scorer. And Dave Kelly was like a perfect match for him at the time, the way we were playing. And, yeah, everything was going so, so well. And then for that to, to end like it did, it, it, it took, well, like everybody knows, it took me a, a good while to get back in the first place. But it was it was horrible watching, like I say, Graham paid a price for it. And then, other, yeah. you know, Graham Taylor came in after that. And we always were just short, you know, just short of what we really needed. And, um, yeah, it was, it was not... It's, it's never nice to be on the sidelines, but with an injury that you knew you were going to be out for a long time was was 
painful. Uh, and and did did Lee Howie ever apologise? Did he apologise after the tackle? Did he did he write to you? No, I think there was a, a bit of malice uh, with everything that was going on the way the game was. I remember Don, even Don Goodman came over, who was playing for Sutherland at the time, and he he, he said, "You deserve that." <laughs> did he really? With some expletives. Yeah, he did. With some expletives before it. Is it is strange to a couple of things I remembered like they were yesterday was Dave Kelly coming over looking like he was going to be sick when he saw me like and then yeah. Don Gumpman with his, his his big afro looking down at me saying you deserve that use and then oh. something like um, but then it was only a couple of weeks later he signed for a <laughs> <laughs> and Don is a lovely lovely guy he, he is that's what I, ca- I can't well I can believe he said it because you've just, just told me but I wouldn't re- I wouldn't have expected that of Don yeah, well, you, you, you're different on the pitch. Yes. Everybody is a different character on the football pitch. But I certainly was, and and Don certainly is as well. And yeah. Um, yeah, in the heat of the moment, things get said and tackles get done and all that sort of thing. So I just took it; it was a part of football anyway. And we had a good laugh when I first saw Don again. I was <laughs> having treatment with the physio, and he came in and smiling and more or less we, we shook hands straight away and give each oh. other a hug and laughing about it really but yeah it's a shame that we couldn't play together as as, as much as uh, hopefully we we should have done really with because um, he, he was another great player added to the squad as yes, well yes 100% he certainly was now that tackle sadly put you out for the season Jeff the 94-95 mm. you ended up playing the following season 14 games one goal we we got to the playoffs and we played Bolton. I know you wasn't a part of it because you was injured. You talk about sitting on the sidelines. How difficult is that to watch a club in the playoffs when you know that if you're on the pitch, you can impact and make a difference? Well, it was more so up in Bolton. I was with the fans. I actually sat with the fans behind the goal on that game. And it was... They just... I don't know. There was a number of their players that were just bullying our lads. Yeah. And I just thought... If I was on the pitch, that wouldn't be happening. John McGinn, for sure, was um, putting it about. And yeah. it, it just felt like, um, yeah, they physically, we lost that game that, that, that night. And I don't think that would have happened if there was a couple of us on that pitch. But, uh, yeah, we, we've just fell short in the, the second game. But, um, yeah, that, that summed up Wolves, didn't it? Yeah. At that period, it was just, just nearly, but not enough. It, it, it did. 95-96, the following season, two sub-appearances for yourself, Jeff. You're still dogged by injuries. And, and you know, that that's the sad story about your time at Wolves. 96-97. Now, I've read your book recently, Riding Through the Storm. If any supporters haven't read it, it is a fantastic book for, for, for so many reasons. An interesting point that you made in the book, you... We, we returned to Crystal Palace away, um, November the 23rd. We won 3-2. You scored. You celebrated, Jeff, against your former club, but you said that's actually a regret of yours. In the book? Oh, yeah, you did. yes. Yeah I, yeah, I probably said that in the book, just to... <laughs> <laughs> no, just to sell a few copies in, uh, in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just... From my memory now, I... I, I I missed the other part of the season, the season before, because the operation I had in the first trying to correct and putting a new cruise ship didn't work. 
All right. So that's why I only played a handful of games a season before. So I yes. knew I, I had another season out. So so I had to have it all taken out and be placed with another cruciate operation. So it was a long, arduous battle back. And to play at Palace, and to, it was a winner, to score the winner, um, it just felt great to be back. And yes. there was no way I wasn't going to celebrate, really. But, um, yeah, I think... When I was writing the book, I had a Crystal Palace fan and reporter who was ghosting the, the book as well. Uh, so got, I, you got, was, yeah. I was probably saying that to appease him as well. Oh, that listen, I'm glad you celebrated, but but that season, the, the last laugh was, was with Crystal Palace because we, we yeah. faced them in the playoffs. The first game, we lost away 3-1. Jeff, you played in that game. I mean, let's talk about that game first, Jeff. You've gone back to your old club. Now we're in the playoffs. I bet you're thinking, right, this is it. Well, I thought the first game down there we played all right. I think yes. um, there was just the, later in the game, Dougie Freeman scored by one of the goals. Yeah, it was a wonder goal, really. Yes, uh, Mickey Starling goal was was a tough guy to beat, and um, he scored two good goals. So I think the rest of the game we we looked a stronger outfit, yeah. which we were, and. But Molyneux, when we got back to Molyneux, we still felt there was a, a real good opportunity. We started right, we started fast enough and we got on the front foot, then we could win this game. And uh, they, there was a few team changes and I found myself at left back and, yeah, this, and the other yeah. was, again, was a little bit frustrating for me personally. But um, yeah, we... We managed to score with Mark Harkins and the crowd, the noise of the crowd was just amazing. Yeah. And which I, I thought for that moment that we were going to do it. But, uh, you know, Palace managed to, uh, even though we won the game, Palace were just always in it too much for us to, to break away. I mean, and uh, for us to really, you know, be a, have a positive result that night. But, yeah, again, it was another one of them so close, but unfortunately it wasn't good enough. I mean, that, that what what was the, you know, you spoke about Graham Turner. Graham obviously had a lot of confidence in you. Your next manager was Graham Taylor. We're going to speak about him in a minute. Mark McGee. What was Mark McGee's rationale in the playoffs on the basis that, yes, we lost 3-1 away, but we had played well. We we needed goals in the second leg. He dropped Andy Thompson at left back and he, he'd put you there. I just really couldn't understand that, Jeff, because surely you'd have been best off in midfield that game. Yeah, no, and Tomo, I think, I don't know if they had a, a bit of a row at Palace because uh, um, Dougie had scored two goals on that right-hand side of the, the, the pitch, but I, I honestly can't remember how I ended up playing left-back. Yeah. Um, obviously, I would love to have played in midfield in such yeah. a crucial game, but... Um, it's just a bizarre thing. I've, you know, I, I can't ever remember playing left back in my life before. So to be found <laughs> out there in such a, an important game, and Tomo had, had a great season as well. Yes. So yeah, it, it's just strange things happen when there's pressure. And uh, my time, you know, at Wolves was blighted with injury. But with again with Mike McGee, you know. My relationship with him wasn't great because I was I was frustrated, was injured most of the time, and yeah. I was probably a pain in the the arse to be honest. Uh, at times when I was trying to get back fit, and 
when they did get back fit, I, I probably had an opinion that he didn't agree with and a few times. So, yeah, we didn't eat, really hit it off. But I've met Mark a few times since. And, you know, it is football's football. Like I say, everybody's character is different. Yes. When everybody's under pressure or you, you, you're on the pitch. But, yeah, Mark's, Mark's a, he's, you know, he's had a good career. He's proven he's a good manager. So, yeah, it's um, sadly it didn't work for to him there for you know getting such a great club into the top flight. Yeah. Now, now one manager you, you clearly did get on with, and I'm not going to let you. You know, you're not going to get away without speaking about your England appearances. Just nine caps for England, which is unbelievable. Between '91 and '92, Graham Taylor clearly had a lot of confidence in you. Um, before we talk about England, I bet it was quite exciting for you when Graham Taylor took the job at Wolves because this is someone who give you your debut for England. Yeah, it's a bit strange, I think. Graham Taylor, everybody knows about my miss against France. If, oh, you, we, if, you, on, if you're old enough, you remember. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I never spoke to Graham Taylor after we played, I think, in Russia, probably about a, a couple of weeks after. It might have been even a little bit longer after that. But we were coming up to the final games for the build-up for the European Cup in Sweden yeah and there was one more game I think it was in Russia and I was dropped to the B team after my you know my chip against uh, France I hit the corner flag so yeah I took that badly really but I knew that you know he had a choice to make and um, you know in a big game he's probably looking at me have I got the confidence now to go one-on-one -on -one with the keeper and and beat him and he probably thought no and that was it uh, for the, the squad against that was going to the European Cup. You know, I was just on the standby. Yes. And so, but I never got a phone call from Graham explaining why or, you know, and likewise, I never rang him. Um, it, it wasn't something he did back then. And so the first time I met Graham was like a number of years later when... He walked into the club and I was still injured at the time as well. I was still recovering from my second operation. So we had a, a, a nice conversation. Graham's a top guy. Oh, and yes. was a top guy. You know, the respect um, in the game was, was huge, you know. Uh, but, I, you know, when uh, listening to John Barnes, it was quite interesting. John Barnes was at the event uh, with the yes. Cure Leukemia event last week. And listening to John Barnes, it, it really sort of touched on what Crane was all about. Yeah. You know, he, he liked people he could really trust and really sort of, um, sort of fulfill what he wanted. And so the flair players sometimes sort of riled him a little bit if they weren't doing a job all the time, you know. Yes. So. That resonated with what was happening with the England team at the time, I think. Uh, and to be to be fair as well, he lost Paul Gascoigne through his injury, his crucial injury. So that just shows if you lose a key player like that, you, you're always going to be losing something special. And um, it, yeah, the, the, what he had to go through after that tournament, you know, the turning pictures on the back of the sun and things like that was yeah. horrendous. And Disgusting. It was all. It was always going to be tough for him to go into club football again. Yeah. And Wolves was a big job, and he had to get it right. He knew he had to get it right pretty quickly. Yeah. Because uh, he didn't have time. 
uh, he wouldn't have been given the time and, and that proved the case you know we were just falling short again and um, yeah and but a great loss I think was Wolves getting rid of him totally I think if if they would have offered him a job a role upstairs yes as he took a on a watch manager, it, I think that would have yeah. been ideal but that, 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 that wasn't the case and um, <clears throat> yeah his, his, his time was like a couple of managers before him it was frustrating yeah I mean you, you, you talk about confidence Jeff against Sunderland you said you're on the crest of a wave and yet instead of laying it off instead you beat four or five plays slotted it past the keeper the France won do you know what Jeff you had every right to shoot there. The keeper's way off his line. You know, obviously you're playing for your country at Wembley. That goes in. You're definitely going into double figures. Oh, oh without doubt. I mean, even when I got back to my my club, Crystal Palace, um, the coach followed down and said, you did the right thing. But yes. it just, unfortunately, you, you, you did it like a plonker. <laughs> he said, <laughs> that was good of it. Yeah. yeah. And but that, that is, you know, you if you're out of playing at the top flight, you're, you're expected to finish them, you know, and there's no doubt that I learned my lesson, you know, do what you, you can do and don't try and do something that you don't do normally. You know, you, you perhaps in training you try things like that and it's a bit flash and yes. you, 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 you annoy the keepers more than anything when you chip them. Um, and when I went in through against Sunderland, you know, there was no doubt I was going to put it in. I just was so confident and... Really, I should have been like that in an England shirt. And that's why I wasn't, you know, being honest, that's why I wasn't picked again, because I probably the confidence wasn't as high as it should have been. Yeah, yeah, it's a fair you know, comment. I was always, there was always question, you know, I was a Crystal Palace player, you know, and then you've got the likes of Liverpool players, Man United players, Arsenal, Tottenham players, not in the squad or playing, and I'm in front of them. There's always that niggle of press, saying, you know, yes, we know he's a solid player, but is he international level? And so I always had to answer that. You know, I did it for nine games. You know, we never lost. So, and that's my only, there's a few regrets in football. One was, the massive one is Wolves. And the other other one is never having the opportunity of losing in an England shirt. You know, it's... Well, I didn't know that. So, played nine games and never on the losing side? No, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the games were like, New Zealand and Australia and we don't matter. And the likes, Argentina, but we Argentina and yeah. France and some big ones. So yeah, that, I, I didn't know that, Jeff. To be honest, um, I, I didn't know that at all. Now, after after Wolves, um, it was Forest, Barnsley, Notts County, and then pretty much full circle, returning back to Crew. But in 2003, Jeff, just a year after your retirement, you was diagnosed with with chronic myeloid leukemia, and I remember that story breaking and. Everyone was just in shock. Reading your book, Jeff, a very, very, you know, poignant book. Um, you, you, you'd actually ignored, uh, ignored, well, ignored signals, hadn't you, Jeff? You, you know, you, you, you'd ignored the, the fact that you could have been ill. Yeah, yeah. Um, you could say typical man, really. Just um, yeah. I had night sweats. I was losing weight, even though I stopped training. Day to day with football, I was in business, so I had a retail uh, shop. I had a number of retail shops, so yeah. I just put everything down to stress and down to learning a new trade, really. Yes, which I was enjoying, strangely enough. Parts of it, yeah, parts of it I wasn't, but there was some parts of it I was really enjoying. 
And I always in the back of my mind, I wanted to set up a business outside football. So I didn't rely on football when I, I really wanted to become a coach or a manager. Yeah. So my idea was to set up a business where it was ticking along, where I wasn't reliant on the finance of football to keep, you know, to sort of change my decision on what I really wanted to do. Yes. So if I got pressure from upstairs in the, in the director's room or something like that, I didn't want to sort of fall by saying, oh, yeah, I'll do that because I was scared of losing a, an income. Yes. So my my thoughts was, my thought process was get a business, set it up, stick in that for a year, then go back into football. But like you say, that, that never happened because, you know, and July the 4th, 2003, my life totally changed with the diagnosis. Yes. I mean, Jeff, it, it, it must have been, you know, it, it does, it puts absolutely everything into perspective. Um, I mean, that day must have, your world must have absolutely fell apart. Yeah, and it's, um, with what I've been doing ever since, my story is, is just, mirrored by so many different people yes that you know that that first initial contact of somebody telling you that you've got something that's threatening your life is is a day that you never forget and it's 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 difficult to take all the information in at first yes. you, you you you're listening but you're not listening and all you hear is that you've got an illness there's not a cure the only chance of beating this is to find a, somebody to match your stem cells so we can perhaps do something that might help you. So it's that's all you hear and you don't hear any positives really. Yeah. And so for about three or four days, it's, it's total darkness really, to be honest. And you just, all you, I was thinking about was those close to me, Julie, my wife and yes. the, my kids who were 10 and 7 at the time. You've got two, two young daughters at the time, haven't you, Jeff? You know, so we, it, and if I'm, if I'm right, Jeff, was it, you, you had to have a stem cell transplant and was it your sister that was the donor? Yeah, my sister was not a great match, but it was, she was the only match we could find. So, um, my professor, Charlie Craddock, who has become a really good friend, um, said we'll make this work we'll we have to probably beat you up more with the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy but you're strong enough and fit enough and that was it you know with football only being 18 months before you know day-to-day -day training less than that it i still had a body that was physically strong that yes. could take what he was going to do to me so that prepared me to have that, the transplant and then the, the, the side effects of all the drugs and everything like that. I was strong enough to put up with all that. Or even though it, it was really, really tough, the, that, that process, you know, eventually after six, seven months, I started to get stronger again and yes. start to feel some sort of normality after another year. And then, yeah, you just start looking forward then with optimism rather than... That darkness, like I said, um, only a few months before. Absolutely, because I believe at one one moment that that, that you had literally, you was told you was you had months to live. If if a, yeah, when 
When I was first diagnosed, my blood, my white cell blood count was into the hundreds when it should be between seven and eleven. I was well over two hundred, and it meant my my white blood cells that normally would be looking after you, your immune system. Yeah, they they were being produced like at, at a very immature level, so they were saturating the blood and not allowing the red blood cells to go around the body. So I didn't have the oxygen to to breathe properly that that was the reason why i was getting fatigued really easily the reason i was losing weight was all down to this and it was a, a signal that i could be in the blast phase of the illness and that meant that was at best was three months so the, the and that was it that's, that was the start of intensive chemo i had yes and Charlie, after a, a couple of weeks, told me that we've, he's got me back into a different stage of the illness that allowed me to have the, 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 the joy, really, of being told that I had three years, you know, and three years, to be honest, doesn't sound a lot now, but it's, it was an awful lot when you thought you only had a couple of months to live. Oh, I mean, Jeff, the, the good news is you, you, you're fit and well and healthy now. In fact, I see you the night... <laughs> Um, I can't believe, Jeff, and if you don't mind me saying your age, uh, I can't believe you're 58. You still look in your 40s. You, you, you look fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, that, that's probably... Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, you do take your health a lot more seriously. You know, it, 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 I think when you're a youngster and all that, you take your health for granted. Yes. And... I, I, I still like enjoying, like everybody else does, a, a pint and a, a wine and going out and everything like that. But my diet, I don't eat meat anymore. And I, I just think about things like that a little bit okay. more. To, the best way of looking after myself. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, it's probably just my genes. I, I, I probably look a bit younger than I do, but... Some mornings I look a lot older. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I'll tell you what, Jeff. It's probably the fact that you've ridden over a billion miles on your bike. Because <laughs> I mean, I've been looking at some more stats. You know, you've completed all the stages in 2015 of the Tour de France, and Lance Armstrong even joined you on it. Um, I mean, you, cycling is uh, actually. You said the other night you don't particularly enjoy it, which I couldn't believe. But it, it's a big part of your life now, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, Lance Armstrong, you just mentioned him. When I, you know, you're looking for positives when you're diagnosed with an illness like I, yes. I did and many others. You're just scrambling for anything that's going to give you an, an opportunity of being positive about it. And somebody, the second day I was diagnosed, sent me Lance Armstrong's autobiography, but it's called, it's not about the bike. Right. And it was about his battle. Uh, with cancer and how he was wasn't going to sit back and just let them do anything to him. He wanted to research what was the best treatment for him, and yes. so he could get back and compete again. Not, not and he's, he's he was given little chance of survival, but he was looking beyond that. Yeah, he was looking to get back and compete again. And everybody knows what he's done. He's, he's cheated in the world of sport. But at the time in 2003, for me, he was a shining beacon of hope. Yeah. And that's why in 2015, when I did the tour, I was celebrating 10 years of remission. Yes. 
from the illness, but also celebrating 10 years of the work cure leukemia have done in that time. And yes. it just felt fitting to just invite him for a couple of days yes. just to say a little thank you to him because he was going through a rough patch of, um, you know, being seen as Voldemort in the world of cycling and the world of sport, you know. He's yeah. put, many cyclists from that time will tell you it was, you know, there was a majority of people, unfortunately, were doing, of course. taking a chance well, to I compete, you know. I heard, Jeff, it was almost par for the course because some of these cyclists, the endurance they need to do and, you know, I think half the race was on it, you know. But if you think about it, you've done it at the stage of the Tour de France. I mean, it is a grueler, isn't it? Oh, it is a grueler. I mean, and we're not racing it. You know, we're just trying to complete it. And <laughs> yeah. that, that is tough enough. So they're, they're competing every day and doing it, you know, nearly twice as quickly as us. And you understand if you've got a contract coming to the end and... You know, I, I'm black and white when it comes to this. I, I don't like anybody cheating in any, any yes. anything. Yeah. But um, in some respects, I can understand when people have that opp opportunity of uh, keeping the fitness when they feel totally down and all that, and oh. somebody offers you something to just keep you at that level. Perhaps, you know, I've never been in that position, but, you know, you, you understand why some do fall by that by that way and um yeah it's a it's a tough tough game to be involved in so yeah a, a chapeau to everybody like they say in the world of cycling oh absolutely and a couple of of of, of, of honors um he was sporting personality of the year in 2005 which which i'm sure meant so much to you and very recently, June 2021, um, you was awarded the MBE for your, your cancer charity fundraising. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it, Jeff? That that must have been a real special moment for you and your family. It, yeah, it was a special moment. At first, to be honest, I, I thought somebody was winding me up from the world of football. <laughs> yeah, I had a phone call. I had a phone call saying you've been uh, selected as a possibility uh, of received an award um, in the Queen Honours list this year, would you accept it? And I've gone, who is this? And then they explained that, you know, they're from the palace and all this sort of thing. And well, I said, yes, of course. And then, and because he said there's a possibility, I didn't really think much of it. Yes. And then probably about two or three weeks later, I received a letter with, you know, I could see it was um, from some, you know, royal uh, location and yes. with the stamp that was on it and I opened it up and it was a letter and yeah it, it was very humbling and it, it was a time to reflect really on what is taken to get to to get such a, an honour but you know and realise how many people have played a part in me getting that as well Yes, because I couldn't have done it without the help of you know people coming on board helping me raise the money supporting everything I've done really so yeah it's, it's nice to to get that but it's like anything you, you don't set out to to do it for to get recognition that way but when it does come along it, it is pretty special oh absolutely and now it's all about giving back for you Jeff you are a patron of, of Cure Leukemia I believe how important is that to you in your life now giving something back and and, and helping other people who, who've gone through the same battle 
Yeah, it, Charlie Coddick, the professor I mentioned earlier, he's, it was by chance I was in the area which um, came under where I was treated in the QE. At first I was in, in Worcester and I looked after a, a great doctor and professor, uh, Shafiq, lovely guy. But he, he passed me straight on the day after to Charlie Craddock saying, this is a top guy in the area. And yeah, just watching him work and getting to know him and listening to him, what he does day in, day out. And his frustrations about not being able to give a patient a drug that he knows is, is in trial. Yeah. And that could help the patient. Yes. It, there was a, a block that wasn't allowing all the wealth of science to benefit patients back in 2005, six, seven, when I started asking him, what can I do to help? So his vision was to simply set up a, a network which accelerated clinical trials, which weren't going on in the world of blood cancer back then. And cure leukemia played a massive part in, in funding this infrastructure, which is delivering hope to patients now it's 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 unlocking opportunities of um scientists to directly work with patients like in the past they've just been in the science lab but with the, the infrastructure we've got now they can work with professors knowing that their products are going to be fast tracked to benefit patients rather than sitting there locked away because of lack of funding or lack of infrastructure to, to yes. make this happen so all I do is, is beat a drum about what these special people do and how they save people's lives and how frustrating it is for them. It's not happening quick enough. So we just try and keep the, the pedal to the floor and make things happen quicker because I know it's important as a patient. Yes. Somebody, a good friend of yours or anybody's can be diagnosed tomorrow and then all of a sudden that world comes everything and that your thoughts are taken up 100% by it. Yeah. We want to try and get eradicate blood cancer so nobody has to think about it anymore. And I think we're not far away yeah. with what we've set up. So that, that keeps me motivated, knowing that Charlie is, sees an endpoint to this. So, yeah, feel um, privileged to be, play a part in it. Well, Jeff, thank you for, for all the hard work you're doing. Um, Thank you for, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been fantastic talking to you and meeting you last week, twice. You can't get rid of me now. <laughs> yeah, like a London bus. I was going to say, <laughs> been there. you see me every other day at the minute. But th <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Jeff. Thank you for playing for our great club and, and representing us. And most importantly, thank you for all the hard work you're doing. And I wish you, you know, full health and continued success in whatever you're doing. Oh, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers, Jason. Thank you.